How's everybody doing today? Amazing. Amazing? I heard an amazing. That's awesome. Should be, right? Here you are. Another day, another opportunity. So uh, just so you're all aware, uh, I struggled with the title of the sermon. And, uh, you know, I want to be honest, you know, but not too honest sometimes. <laughs> but I titled it The Cost of Living Centered and Sent because we've been talking about over the last several weeks living centered and sent. And so there's a cost that goes along with this. But the other optional title was The World Will Hate You. <laughs> the World Will Hate You. You know, and that's what I'm going to talk about in the scriptures and what Jesus says. So welcome to CFC if it's your first time. Uh, it's a tougher message. And, uh, and I hope. God really speaks to you through this. So there's something I've learned over the years that there's not enough truth that's preached from our pulpits. And, and it's not necessarily that, that there's lies being told, you know, blatant, outright lies. I say, instead, what I think it is, is there's an incomplete version of the truth, and that's just as detrimental to the body of Christ. Amen. Right? So the gospel is offensive. That, that, that's a fact. Right? It's good news for the lost and hopeless, but it's going to be offensive to those who haven't realized their need for salvation. It confronts us. It confronts our sin. You know, I always go back to uh, what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10. And it starts off in verse 34 where he says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against his mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And I know that just happens naturally sometimes. And then a man's enemies will be those of his own household, it says. Of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, he says. Think about that for a second, right? And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who, does, he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Right? Jesus isn't selling this appealing bill of goods that promises your best life now. That's not what he's saying. He's saying this life is going to be tough. You're going to, just by saying yes to Jesus, right, you're going to put yourself in opposition to people. And it might be people in your own household, your own family, your workplaces, people you've known your whole lives. And that's a tough decision to make, but that is the cost of living centered and sent. And that is the cost of discipleship and living this faith out, authentically anyways, right? I think a lot of times we think, you know, if we go to church and, and, and you know, we slap a bumper sticker on our car or wear the right t-shirt, then we're good, right? I got it. I went on Sunday. I did what I had to do, you know, and then we hope that that fills us for the week and I'll see you next week. But Jesus never taught anything like that. He didn't. Neither did Paul, neither did the other apostles. What he said, you know, he welcomed people into a way, a revolution, right? It's this upside-down kingdom, 
And a lot of it is in contradiction to what the world tells us is good and right and okay. And so therefore, there's going to be some friction and tension at times. Amen? Just making sure you're with me. All right. So what Jesus is doing here is he's explaining this dire need to choose him, but also the consequences of the choice. He's not, he's not, you know, this is what we do, right? In, in modern evangelical, excuse me, in the modern evangelical church, what we do is we try to lure people in with the promises, right? God's grace, his forgiveness, his mercy, the new life, deliverance, freedom, right? Yeah, that's all true. But what we do is, is we forget to tell people the rest of the truth, that this surrender and sacrifice, commitment and dedication, that it's a life for a life, the gospel. It's not just a buffet where you come and take what you want and fill your plate and go. What it is, is you eat what the Lord feeds you and you get full on that. And it changes your life so radically that you don't want the junk food anymore. Right? I wish I could do that in real life. Man, just talking to my brother Mike back there about that, right? <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right, Twinkies for everyone, right? So I heard this said once, you know, and it always stuck with me. I think Pastor Brian has used it too, you know, years back. But, you know, I think of law enforcement, right? The moment we, oh, we, the moment an, an officer straps on a badge, they have sworn enemies they may have never met. They, they immediately are in opposition to an entire group of people who oppose law enforcement. And it's the same thing. When we say yes to Jesus, we are now immediately in, a, in opposition to the forces of evil or the world that adopts anything that contradicts. And so I just, that's what we're going to talk about here today. But the more clearly your life shows what God demands of his people the more threatening your life will be to those who don't live that out, who live their own way, who live according to the ways of the world, right? So the greater your desire to be godly, the more you're going to offend people committed to unbelief and sin. And that's what's going to happen. You know what's sad is I see it happening even inside the church, that I see people who are trying to live sold out for Jesus, and people even in the church are like, that's eh, a bit too much, you know? But what about... Because we're so accustomed that this culture has so indoctrinated us to a point that we're willing to make these compromises or because the majority accepts it, we still carry some of these things with us. And when somebody really lives this out authentically, it really rubs us the wrong way. It challenges us as it should. The, the, the question is, is what do you do when you're challenged? What do you do when your sin is confronted? Jesus loves us enough to suffer greatly for us that we might have faith to suffer just a little bit for him. See, I read this recently and I thought it was a great reminder of not only the challenges and the opposition we're going to experience in this life, but the comforting promises that we have in Scripture, that we have in Jesus. And John MacArthur wrote this. He says, the world hates you, but I love you. 
right? Jesus speaking. The world is your enemy, but I am your friend. The world gives you trouble and anxiety, but I give you my peace. The world will cause you sorrow, but I will give you my joy. The, the world may kill you, but I give you eternal life. And the world is under Satan's power, but you will have the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. Right? All these statements are based in biblical truths. Right? And that's what's so beautiful about them. In other words, we have nothing to fear. Nothing. You know, I always tell people, you know, when they're struggling with fear and, and worry, it's an imaginary monster that you've created. Stop inviting it into your life. Because here's the, here's the truth, that if you're in Christ and the Spirit of God is in you, then you have the power to overcome anything the world throws at you. Yes. Scripture says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can endure. I can persevere. I can count it all joy. Right? I can get up again. I can keep fighting. And that's what we need to do, church. And a lot of times what we do is go back to our defaults. We try to fight spiritual battles with carnal weapons. And by carnal means. And, and what does 2 Corinthians say? 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says this. He says that the weapons we possess have divine power. Divine power to tear down strongholds. And what we, what we do is, is we walk into a gunfight with a stick. Right? We let worry or we try to do it and fix it ourselves and we wonder why we make a bigger mess or why we're full of more worry and anxieties and fears about a certain situation. And Jesus says, I've given you the power of God. You have the word of God. You can pray to God. He intervenes for us. And we can tear down strongholds, it says. Not fear them. Not allow them to rule our lives like we often do. For several weeks now, as we said, we've been talking about this living, centered, and sent, and what that looks like in the life of a Christ follower, right? It transcends, as I said, church attendance and bumper stickers. It's, it's, it's way beyond that. That's the tip of the iceberg is our church attendance. This is the least we should be doing, right? Coming together, getting battle ready and equipped because the world is going to come at you the moment you step out these doors. And the world will chew you up and it will spit you out time and time again. And some of us know this all too well. And so when you come here, it's to rally together. This is your family. This is your army. This is your team. And the Lord will speak to you here through worship, through prayer, through the word. And you should get ready and be encouraged and realize that if I'm not plugged into him, I can't do this. I might as well quit now. That's not the case, right, team? It's about entering, it's about centering, sorry, your entire life on following Jesus and living out the call to love him deeply and genuinely loving others sacrificially and sincerely, and then reaching the lost with the hope of the gospel. Right? It's important to have instruction and direction, which is what we do week to week. We want to give you instruction. We want to give you direction. But it's also equally important for us to know and understand the cost of living this way. Jesus did that. And make no mistake, 
Salvation is free, but it's not cheap. It's not cheap. See, God freely extends salvation to all men, but it requires a lot from us in return. We don't earn it, but when we receive it, that free gift of eternal life, it's expected that we should give our lives to this faith. That's what's expected. Our faith, I always like to say, should have feet. It should move. James says it, you know, better. He says that a a faith without deeds is a dead faith. And so I'm going to read this main passage, but I want to just sort of break down the scenario, the context here. What's happening? Jesus, this is coming out of the, uh, John chapter 15 comes out of the upper room discourse. This is what we've been going through on Wednesday nights. We started in John chapter 13, right, where they meet in the upper room and they, they celebrate the Passover meal together and Jesus washes their feet and he, he's teaching them and he's getting ready. This is his final march to the cross, right? And so what he's doing is, is he's preparing his men for his departure. Like, look, you've got to pay attention here because it's going to get really real really fast. And so he's pouring into them. And, you know, at this point, they've left the upper room, and they're probably walking, you know, as they walk to the garden, they're probably walking through a vineyard, and he talks about, you know, the vine and the vine dresser and how that we, as branches, we have to stay connected to the vine because if we don't, then we can't do any of the things that he's called us to do. And so here we are, right? And he goes on to say this in verse 18. He says, if the world hates you, you know it's hated me before it hated you, right? He says, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. It would love you. But because you are not of this world, because I chose you out of this world, the world hates you. He says, remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. And if they persecuted me, then they're also going to persecute you. So if they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one, the Father, who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my Father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned, but now... They have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law, the Old Testament. They hated me without a cause. When the helper, the counselor, the the Holy Spirit comes, whom I will send to you from the father, that is the fruit, the spirit of truth, excuse me, who proceeds from the father, he will testify about me. And you will testify also because you've been with me from the beginning. Let's break this down a little bit today. So the world, as Jesus says, hates believers because it hates him. The world hates us because it hates him. Hatred or love for Jesus is either going to unite or divide people. It's either gonna unite us, bring us together, or it's going to push us apart. And that's what Jesus is saying, right? I love what he says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30. He says, the one who is not with me is against me, and the one who does not gather with me scatters, right? 
When we're with Christ, we're drawn to him. We come together. We meet like we are here this morning, right? And the church sort of becomes our little hub where we meet and we get equipped and we pray and we study and we encourage and we spur each other on and we serve our community, right? But if we're not with him, if we're not for him, then what ends up happening is as we scatter, we move, we do our own thing, and we live amongst the world according to the ways of the world, to the enemy himself. And so most people, what I've learned, and I'm sure many of you can attest to, is that they'll tolerate our faith beliefs, right? They'll tolerate us going to church. They'll, they'll tolerate us identifying as Christians, right? They'll tolerate even sometimes let you pay, play your K-love in your workplace, some of you, right? But only to a point. And there's always a point where they won't anymore. And that point usually comes when our faith begins to challenge their positions. That's when division happens. That's when opposition happens, right? The second our faith says, I don't agree with you. The Lord says, Scripture says. And that's the moment we're going to start getting pushback from people. Jesus said, the world hates you know that it hated me first, right? And, you know, the if here in this statement that Jesus makes is not uncertain. It's not like, just in case the world hates you, no, that's not how Jesus was speaking. And it's actually lost in translation a little bit because the Greek construction of that sentence actually reads more like, if the world hates you, and it will. It's not this uncertain if, Remember this, behind the world's hatred for us is hatred for God, right? Remember, we're in good company. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in this world. We have a power that Jesus has given to us that can overcome death. We have a power that gives us the ability to stand firm and push forward when the world and everything else inside of us tells us to quit. We have that power, and we need to tap into it more. <clears throat> One of the reasons the world hate, hates Jesus is because he, ex, he exposes its sin. That's one of the biggest reasons, right? I want to take a closer look at these verses, 22 and 24, right? If, he says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin. And, and if you read that literally in this English language, what ends up happening is, is we just, it confuses us. What do you mean they wouldn't have sin if I had not come to spoken with them? Of course, all men sin. So the real translation there in the, in the context is guilt. They would not have the guilt of sin, Right? But now they have no excuse for sin, he says. And if I had not done among them the works, right, the miracles that they had seen, which nobody else did, then they would not have any responsibility for that sin either. That's what he's saying. But now they have both seen and hated me as my fa and my father as well. What he's saying is, is because I came and I shared the truth with them, because I showed them the power of God, because I gave them the way, the truth, and the life, and they rejected me, well, now they're showing their hatred for the Father. 
And this happened not just with the pagan or the Gentile. It happened within the religious group of people, the Jewish audience, right? And so what Jesus is saying is, is they were out ex- without excuse. You know, the thing is, is we have to remember, is we all have sin in our lives, right? Right, and who doesn't? Go ahead, raise your hand. Go ahead. No, I'm just kidding. We all have sin. Romans 3, Paul spells it out. He says this, he says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's not one human being on this planet that doesn't have sin or has never had sin. Jesus was the only man to ever walk without sin in this lifetime. And so, again, it levels the playing field, doesn't it? As we all sit here from every background, different walks of life, socioeconomic you know, backgrounds, and so on, every single one of you have that in common, that need for Jesus. And so here we sit at the foot of the master, right? Now that sin has been exposed, we have an obligation to respond to it. And if we don't, then we have to deal with the consequences of it. And that's what happens, right? For most of my life, what would happen is, is people would try to help me and come to me, right? When I was lost and I'm in my addiction and I'm living like a lunatic, right? People would come to me and try to share the truth of of the gospel. They would try to share the love of Christ. And what I would do is, is I would reject them because what it meant was I had to quit doing what I was doing. I wanted the grace, I wanted the mercy, I wanted the freedom, I wanted deliverance, I didn't want the sacrifice, I didn't want the commitment, I didn't want to make the dedication. I just wanted the good stuff. But I wanted to keep living the way I was. And let me tell you, if you got a little too Jesus-y on me, I was like, beat it. Because I wasn't ready. And I was nasty to people. Anybody else relate to that? Sad but true, right? See, Jesus is talking in the present tense to his disciples about people whom he had witnessed to that still denied him. Right? So he made it clear. He says it's going to be even more tolerable for the pagans of Tyre and Sidon and for the wicked Sodom on judgment day than it will be for these cities. Because you can't unknow it. You can't unhear it. You can't unsee it. They're without excuse. See, when Jesus or us, his people, his church, expose people's sin, and unless the Holy Spirit is convicting them and drawing them to Christ, they're going to react defensively, just like I was saying about myself. Right? We're going to get defensive because we're not ready. And unless the Holy Spirit is doing that work in our lives, unless he's starting to convict our hearts and he's starting to regenerate our hearts, what's going to end up happening is we're going to get defensive and we're going to start justifying and we're going to walk away and scatter, as Jesus said, because we're not with him, we're against him. John chapter 3, verse 20, Jesus says this, and this is the judgment that the light, I'm sorry, John said this, and this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light so that his deeds will not be exposed. Think about that. How true is that, right? When we shine the light of Jesus Christ, 
then we become that exposing light that evil flees from. Guess what? You're going to lose some friends. Guess what? You're going to live in opposition to even your family at times. They're going to turn on you. Anybody know that? Yeah? I'm going through it right now. I'm not above that. I'm right there with you. You know, there's people in my life right now that, you know, they want the old me. Can't you just be so-and-so? Can't you just be Jamie for a minute? I don't need the Christian version. Well, that's all I am. That old man's dead. You know? Praise God for that. By living in faithful obedience to Jesus, you're going to threaten unbelievers in their entire way of living. You're going to confront them with your life. I'm going to say this, and I said this on Wednesday night, that going to a church where the Bible is taught is dangerous. It's dangerous, right? It's dangerous for us. Because as I said, you can't unknow the truth. You can't unhear the truth. Everything I say to you here today, unless you go, la, 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 guess what? You can't unknow it. You can't leave here and forget it. You can try. You can act like you don't care, right? But I'm going to tell you right now, the Holy Spirit will do something with it. You can't unknow it. It becomes dangerous because now you're going to start living in, in blatant opposition to God and to the Spirit of God and to the Word of God. And what we have to do, what Jesus says is we've got to live in total obedience, and it's hard. But he said, don't worry, I'm going to send my helper. I'm going to give you instruction. Right? And, and so our job, our job is, and we say this all the time, right? It's not about perfection, it's about direction. When you start to pursue Jesus authentically, sincerely, when you start to put him at the center of your life, what's going to happen is people are going to see a change. They're going to see a change. I, I can remember this. I went to church for 11 years, right, in and out of church, remembered a bunch of scripture, you know, went to discipleship classes, Bible studies. You know, I knew a lot here, but this was still sour and hardened. And so when I went away to Teen Challenge, I had an encounter with the living God. Like there was no mistaking what happened to me. No mistaking. And there are people in this room that can attest to this because they know who I used to be. And what ended up happening was is the encounter was so real and so powerful that it changed everything about me. The way I think, the way I dream, the way I talk, the things I'm passionate about, the way I see people, the way I handle my problems, everything is different. Not because Jamie's good, but because God is good. God can take the fool and confound the wise, the weak and shame the strong. That's what he does. If you're hopeless today, I'm going to tell you there's hope in him. If you feel powerless today, I'm going to tell you there's power in him. If you're looking for change today, I'm going to tell you he can transform your heart and your life and he can make a new creation out of each and every one of you. That's what our God does. Our Holy Spirit is not just some emotion that we feel when we sing. The Holy Spirit, he takes over, and he controls your heart and your mind if you let him, and he makes you into something you never thought possible, and he, he creates freedom in your life. He creates passion in your life, and he changes who you are. I came home from Teen Challenge almost a year later, and I'll never forget. People looked at me like I was nuts. 
They did. They thought I was crazy. My old friends, you know, a lot of them don't talk to me anymore. I'm okay with that because there's nothing that I need to say to them anymore. I've said everything. And there's nothing they need, they're going to say that I need to hear either. They come to me, you know, it's funny. I, 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 the majority of the people I grew up with think I'm a joke because of my faith. Because the world hates me. Because he hated him first. But there are a few There were a few, a remnant that have stuck around, right? The ones who were hurting the way I was, the ones who were hopeless the way I was. They started reaching out and asking, right? They saw something happen in me so authentic. Some of them are sitting in this church right now. One of them's right there. He's an elder in our church. I just see it happening all the time, not because of who I am, but because God did something so radical in me and he's doing something so radical in him and he's doing things radical in all of you. And so we have to just embrace that and allow it to happen. Again, I have no idea where I am in my notes. (laughs) Preach. (laughs) That's right. That's right. So I'm going to just say this. If we know the truth and still live in disobedient or refuse to repent, then we'll be judged even more harshly according to what Jesus said here. And that should literally scare the hell out of us. Literally. There's no excuse for unbelief, even if you haven't read the scriptures or heard the gospel preached. Right? Unbelief is definitely not due to a lack of solid evidence. It's definitely not that. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, what it says is, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, but because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, creation, so that people are without excuse. Open your eyes. Open your eyes. There is no question that an intelligent designer put this all together. Just us just the human eye or ear and how our senses work the brain and the computer that it is it's amazing that people can block that miracle out and say well we all came from this blob or this cell or we were all frogs once or something crazy i wouldn't mind a tail i mean i'm cool with that but it's just not meant to be we our lives should cause people to question their unbelief our lives should should literally cause people to question unbelief if the world loves you though here's the problem if the world loves you, then you need to reevaluate how you live, he says in verse 19. The reason the world doesn't question its unbelief in our presence is because we look just like them. Because when we walk out these doors, we camouflage ourselves like chameleons and we slide right into these comfortable places because, God forbid, people know my faith. 
Or God forbid I have to defend my faith. God forbid I have to ruffle some feathers. God forbid that, you know, I'm, I'm in a debate about who Jesus is and the truth of the Bible. God forbid people don't like me. <clears throat> I want to be clear that you should not offend the world by being insensitive, rude, or obnoxious. Right? We need to conduct ourselves with wisdom, grace, and sensitivity towards the unbeliever. That's what it says in Colossians chapter 4. Love people. Love people sincerely and sacrificially. Remember who you were. Remember where you came from. Remember what your life was like. Remember what you needed. And sadly, many in the church are condescending, argumentative, and insulting to people outside of the faith. We are. You know, Gandhi said, I, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. It's such a, a painful reminder of how far we have to go. You know, I go into High Point a couple of days a week, and, and I get to see people at their most broken state. And I was really shocked. I went in as their spiritual advisor, and I was really shocked because... I was expecting a lot of resistance to the spiritual thing, especially because I'm a Christian pastor. I was really expecting that to be challenged. And you know, it's been embraced. I've given out a hundred Bibles in a month, a hundred Bibles in a month. And, and do you know what the opposition and hes hesitancy is towards the Christian church? It's us. People have been hurt by religious people. They have, they have not experienced the love and grace of Jesus Christ. They've experienced reprimand, condescending behavior, unnecessary rebukes, insults, a lack of love. And so that's where we need to get better as a whole church. And it starts with each one of us individually. It is contagious when we do it right. But if we accept anything less, this is where it comes, you know, discipleship comes into play. This is where accountability comes into play. Is we need to hold each other up. We need to be honest with one another. It starts with us. And if we can't do that here and now in the context of this fellowship, then we're missing the point of Christianity. We've made it what it's not. We've made it a religion. We've made it a social club. We've made it something to belong to that serves me, that meets my needs. And that's not at all what the way is. The way is a revolution. It's a, it's a war against sin. It's the only way to save people from damnation, from eternity in hell. That's the message of the gospel. It's not come and have a fun time and hear some great music. And if we keep preaching that, we're going to not only insult and not glorify God, we're going to push people further and further into their sin and be held accountable for that. We should be hated for being Christ-like and standing firm in our convictions, but not for being a jerk. Not for being a jerk. When Jesus says the world loves its own, that implies that we should not be so aligned with the world's perspectives and practices. And so if you find yourself resembling the lost more than Jesus, then it's time to re-examine, realign, and repent.
That's where we need to be. It's time to stop making excuses. It's time to stop saying things like, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. It's time to stop being honest with ourselves and start responding accordingly. You know, people think I love Yoda because he's short and smart like me. <laughs> well, okay, I'm not that smart. I am a Star Wars nerd. I do. I like, I like the movies. And there's a lot of great messages in them, but I have a mug and it says, do or do not, there is no try. Do or do not, there is no try. I need to hear that every single day. I need to read that every single day. Because a lot of the times I'll say, I'm trying when I'm not putting in any effort. I'm trying. No, what I mean is, is I know I should be doing something and I'm not. And we need to stop doing that and stop lying to ourselves. We need to start doing. It's okay to try and fail. What's not okay is to try, fail, and not try again. Direction, not perfection. We have the Holy Spirit in us. We have the power of God. Stop trying to do it on your own. Stop trying to fight spiritual battles with carnal weapons and losing over and over and over again to these imaginary monsters like fear and worry that we create and invite into our world. There's only one way to slay. It's with the divine weapons that have divine power that God has given us. When Jesus says that, we ought to take heed. The world loves us too much. We're doing something wrong. Friends, we're called to love others, but others may very well not love us back. They may even hate us, and that's okay. That's not our problem. It's actually none of our business. Who cares what people think about us? All that matters is that one day we stand before our Lord, and he looks and he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Well done. You took everything I gave you. You took all your gifts, all your strength, all your resources, and you put them to work for me in this kingdom. And that's what I demand of you. The world's hatred cannot stop us from sharing the gospel. We have to accept the fact that most will reject the message but must continue to share it regardless. It reminds me of, of a story in Isaiah, right? Isaiah chapter 6. Everybody familiar? For the sake of time, I'm just going to sort of go quickly through it and, and explain it. But basically, Isaiah goes into the throne room, right? And he's this great prophet. And he realizes when he's in the presence of God and his angels, he realizes like, whoa, what a man of unclean lips I am. I'm a sinner. Gosh, I am so sinful. And here I am, right? He's this great religious man. And the awakening, the power of God's before him, the conviction of God is happening. And he's like just frozen. And, and, and what does God do? He, he sends this willing Isaiah out to share the truth, not with an encouraging word, not with like, hey, you're going to be a revivalist. And everybody's going to want to buy your books. And everyone's going to want to come to your church, Isaiah. No. What does he say? He gives them this sad and honest message. He says, I, you know, Isaiah, you're going to preach to a people who will hear but not respond to this message. And you know what? We can expect the same. Right? Those of us, though, he says that it, it, it states in that Isaiah 6 that those who would hear and receive the message 
It would be life-changing and transformative. That's definitely in there. It's not just this opposition. There's going to be this remnant, you know? And those of us who have received this message can testify to that. We know. We're the fruit, right? And it's also important to remember that Isaiah's calling, it wasn't just this temporary mission. It was a lasting one. It was a lifelong mission. And I think a lot of times we think, like, we compartmentalize our mission, don't we? And I'm not, I used the example of our backpack ministry here in the first service, not to diminish it because I think it's great that we're doing that and it's great that it's part of a larger mission that's continuing. But what happens a lot of times, you say, hey, let's get the guys together and we'll go out evangelizing this weekend. And we go out up and down the streets and we pass out tracts and that's great and everything. But where's the follow-up? A lot of times there's none. We do it for us. We do it to say we're doing something. Right? What God is saying is this, this, this mission is lifelong. Your job to be a disciple and make disciples doesn't stop. That's the cost of living centered and sent. That's the cost of salvation. And we have to embrace that. Is this making you feel good today? Good. Isaiah is told to keep going until everything was destroyed and that this small faithful remnant left behind, would survive, and new growth would come from that. I'm going to go to John chapter 12, and this might blow someone's mind today. I hope it does. John chapter 12, verses 37 through 41. It says this, even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, right? They had seen all kinds of miracles. They still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, And it says, Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah asks. And for this reason, they could not believe because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. Who has? The Lord. The Lord. He blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn. And I would heal them. And Isaiah said this, this is the last line, this is the, pay attention, Isaiah said this, because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Did you catch that? In that portion of scripture, when Isaiah is in the throne room of God and the angels are hovering about and the Lord's train fills the temple, who is Isaiah talking to? Jesus. 750 years Before his incarnation, Isaiah is in the throne room talking to Jesus. Whenever we see God in person, we're seeing, it's it's probable we're seeing Christ. It's probable we're seeing Christ. John says God is spirit. So think about that for a second. Jesus is saying the same things to us that he said to Isaiah. The message hasn't changed. The world will reject you. It will reject me and my message, but continue on until your dying day or that day of destruction. God just wants willing, surrendered servants like Isaiah. That's what he's asking from us. Not a new sexy spin on Christianity that lures people in and and keeps them in church pews with this soft, unconvicting message. That's not... Timothy, we we see Paul warns about that. There's going to be a time when people are just going to want, you know, to soothe their itching ears. 
with messages that comfort them and please them. But that's not what Jesus preached. It's not what John the Baptist preached, not what Paul preached or Peter preached. It was repent and be saved. And a lot of times we forget that peace or we think we do it once and we're good. But it's a cycle of repentance that we are supposed to live in. Pastor Sam did an amazing job last week teaching on the work of the Holy Spirit. I loved it. It was really good, right? And in verse 26, it tells us that the Spirit will come to testify in and through God's people. See, the fact that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and is sent by Jesus, who himself was sent by the Father, implies some things. It implies the deity of the Holy Spirit, doesn't it? It implies the distinctiveness of the Holy Spirit, that it's a, he's a distinct person. And so therefore you have this picture of the Trinity right there. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Three distinct persons who are all divine. It's important to remember that the Holy Spirit is a person and a he, not a thing or an it. And we often get moved by emotion and thinks, oh, that's the Holy Spirit working, right? But sh- and it's not that he can't evoke emotion in us, but again, that's not his primary purpose, and that's what we have minimized him to. That's not even close to his purpose. The purpose of the Holy Spirit is to empower us to become like Jesus so we can witness for Jesus and so we can live and love like Jesus. That's what the Spirit of God does. And so why it's almost like you know taking out a Ferrari and driving it in first gear all day. I mean, some of you might be law-abiding citizens, but if I'm in a Ferrari, I'm sorry. I'm hitting all six gears. I want to see what it does. And so should we with the Spirit of God. Can we just walk in the Spirit, surrender to the Spirit, and see what it'll do in our lives? Can you imagine? There's probably about 350 people or so in this room right now, I'm assuming. I'm pretty good. I can count jelly beans and everything. But I'm going to tell you, if 350 people surrendered to the Spirit of God, walked out into this community, and lived that out, there would be a complete revival, not just in New Bedford, not just in Bristol County, but in the entire northeastern part of the country. Think about what Jesus did with 12. Think about what he can do with us. In verse 27, Jesus reminds us that if we're true friends, and you can come on up, worship team. If we're true friends and followers of his, then we're going to testify. It's not if, it's you will if you're a true friend and follower of Christ. You can't have one without the other, right? And so the definition of testify, according to Webster, is to make a declaration for the purpose of establishing a fact, right? To make a statement based on personal knowledge, belief, or conviction. And so the original disciples, as we see in this verse 27, were qualified to testify because they were eyewitnesses to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says this, you've been with me since the beginning. You are qualified to testify, and the Holy Spirit's going to come and help you do that. So then, 
That begs a question, doesn't it? What qualifies us? If we weren't there from the beginning, if we weren't eyewitnesses to the, to the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, then the only thing that we can rely on then is the work that God is doing and has done and continues to do in our lives, right? His existence in our lives, his presence in our lives, and the evidence of that in our lives, amen? Amen. Because a surrendered heart to Jesus Christ is going to be proof to the world that he is real. That's what qualifies us. And I always say this, a man with an experience is never at the mercy of a man with an argument. You can argue me till you're blue in the face, but because I have an encounter with a living God, you will never convince me otherwise. And that's where we need to be, church. So there's three applications here. Three applications. And the first one is that some of us need to have more contact with the world and engage more people. We're not doing that enough. Right? We're not to be of the world. We're supposed to be in the world. And that's what Jesus prayed for us in John chapter 17. If we're always surrounded by Christians, then we're going to miss this opportunity to witness to the lost. We'll miss it. And I always think of, you know, Francis Chan's quote. He says that we're like manure Christians. That if you pile us all together, we smell really bad. But if you spread us out, growth happens. That's right. I just called you poop. (laughs) We need to trust the Holy Spirit when it comes to witnessing to the world. That's the second point. We need to be aware of and ready for these opportunities when God presents them to us. Because he will. It's just us being aware and ready and, and, and expecting opposition and rejection and then learning to be okay with it. Stop trying so hard to be liked by everybody and start trying to glorify and please God. That's what we're called to do, right? And then the third piece is expect from the world what Jesus received from the world. And that was mostly hatred with a little bit of fruit, right? Instead of living in fear of hatred or rejection, seek to find fruit. Become a fruit miner. That's your, your new title. You're fruit miners, not poop, I promise. God will use us and work through us if we're willing, surrendered servants like Isaiah. Amen, church? Amen. Can we stand up and just worship the king one more time?